welcome to the She Talks Health Podcast, your source for information about all things women's hormonal health. I'm your host, Sophie Shepard. I'm the founder of She Talks Health and the co-creator of the 12-week Empower Her group gut and hormone program. I'm a certified functional health coach and a holistic menstrual health educator. This podcast was created to give you clarity about how to take control over your hormonal health using safer, natural options. I created this podcast to cover the widespread and complex health issues plaguing women today. From the rise of infertility to the epidemically high numbers of women with autoimmune disease to menstrual cycle problems, digestive issues, anxiety, weight gain, food sensitivities, mental, emotional, and energetic imbalances, and so much more. If there's a topic that you need answered, I encourage you to write us at podcast at shetalkshealth.com and we will try our absolute best to cover that subject. My greatest mission in life is to help women radically change their health and their lives by teaching them how they can use their hormones as their superpowers. So with that in mind, I hope you enjoy today's episode. As always, ladies, this podcast and the information being provided to you is for educational and informational purposes only, and it should not be taken as medical advice. It is not intended to treat or cure any specific illness, and it is not to replace the guidance provided by your own medical practitioner. This information is to be used at your own risk based on your own judgment. And if you suspect you have a medical problem, we urge you to take appropriate action by seeking medical attention. Hey, everybody. Sophie Shepard here for another episode of the She Talks Health podcast. And I have a special guest, Morgan Adams. So welcome to the show, Morgan. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited. And uh, to tell you a little bit about Morgan, she is a holistic sleep coach. How cool is that? For women who struggle with getting a good night's sleep consistently, aka all of my clients, (laughs) (laughs) And her goal is to help women feel better, live better. And the key to both begins with a good night's sleep. So Morgan is also a former insomniac who spent almost a decade using prescription sleeping pills, despite knowing that her overall sleep quality suffered. She's also a two-time breast cancer survivor who advocates for lifestyle of disease prevention and integrating holistic strategies for cancer treatment. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to interview you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Well, could you tell us a little bit about what it was like when you were in this decade-long insomnia place and then like how you got out of it? Yes. So when I was in my mid-30s, I had a personal crisis that I will not bore you with the details, but needless to say, it threw me into an episode of insomnia. And Mm -hmm. I had the kind of insomnia called sleep onset insomnia. Basically, I laid there in bed every night for about two hours waiting to get to sleep. Sleep would not come. And this is fairly a fairly common type of insomnia. But I got so frustrated with not being able to sleep, obviously, that I consulted with my doctor who gave me a prescription for Ambien, Mm -hmm. which I took because I didn't think there were any other options available to me. And the Ambien did help me get to sleep. The problem was the next day, the side effects were horrendous for me. I was very groggy. I didn't feel fully alert and awake until about lunchtime. It started to impact my job actually, because I had a job at the time that was almost like a crisis PR situations could happen. And I had to be Johnny on the spot. Oh, wow. Typing up something very quickly to be handed in. 
And there were occasions where I just could not produce fast enough. So it affected my job. I also unfortunately had binge eating episodes after taking the Ambien on occasion. Oh, interesting. Um, Is that side effect? It can be. Yeah. So interesting. I've found out a whole lot of stuff about those kinds of sleeping pills after the fact, but a couple of interesting little data zingers are that in 2019, the FDA issued a black box warning for Z Z drugs, which is basically like Ambien Lunestis Sonata. And the reason they did that is because, I mean, essentially, I mean, this is not a technical term, but they were just, people were kind of just blacking out and doing things that were harmful to themselves or others. So things like driving cars, I mean, thankfully I didn't do that and put myself in harm's way or anyone else, but there's a black box warning on these drugs. And I also found out that in 2013, which was like right before I stopped taking the pill, they switched the dosing requirement for women because what they found was that women were inadvertently taking too large of a dose. So they pulled the dosage requirement back. So essentially I spent most of those eight years being overdosed on oh Ambien, hence those side effects. And well, that also because makes- they, they do clinical studies on men and not women. So that makes a yep. lot of unfortunately for us that are female. (laughs) It's very unfortunate that they do that. But then basically sleeping pills like the Ambien's in about 80% of people, there are residual side effects the next morning, like morning grogginess, hard to wake up. So in retrospect, I think that I would have probably been better off just dealing with the side effects of sleep deprivation versus being under the side effects of the medication the next day. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That sounds really horrible for years of your life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so what ended up happening to get me off the pills, it was the moment of truth happened. I started dating my now husband and he said to me just in a very vulnerable kind of situation, he said, I really feel like the pills that you take at night make you act like a zombie and it's kind of freaking me out. And that was like, and he said it with love, not judgment, or this, this relationship will be over, but it was sort of like a wake up call for me to really examine what am I doing, continuing to take these pills? We don't know the long-term consequences of taking them. And so I decided I was going to stop. And the way that I stopped is not how I would encourage anyone else or my clients to stop Mm -hmm. taking them. I just went off of them almost cold Turkey. I kind of cut the pills a bit to titrate or taper down. But really, if you're going to discontinue use of a pill like that, you really need your prescribing physician's guidance on how to do that because there are different taper down schedules. And also, I think it's really helpful to have the help of a coach to help you with the accountability and the support because it's not easy. And although the doctor will give you the directions, you can't like communicate with your doctor every day about it and text or message. So yeah, I don't recommend doing it in that way, but I was lucky because I was able to successfully get off the pills and I slept pretty decently for years after that. I wasn't like a superstar sleeper, but you know, I was satisfied enough. And then there was a plot twist mm-hmm. and that was March of 2020. <laughs> oh, <laughs> right that when, month. <laughs> that month. Yes. <laughs> right when the pandemic started, I started to see that my sleep was getting worse. Yeah, And I did not want to go back to the days of full-blown insomnia. So I started to get proactive, looked online to see what I could do about my sleep. I bought an aura ring, started tracking it, 
Cool. And I got my sleep back to, to normal and actually got, it got even better because I had the sleep tracker to kind of hold me accountable. But interestingly, I started just sharing organically on, on Facebook things that I was doing. Hey, this worked for my sleep. Mm-hmm. And I came to find out that a lot of my circle at this point in time were struggling with their sleep as well. It is interesting how we think we're living in a bubble where no one else can understand these things, but most of us are dealing with sleep issues or like when you were talking about your taper down story, I was thinking about how I got off my antidepressant and like how many people are on antidepressants Uh and want to get off, but are afraid to and don't know how. And yeah, I mean, I think we're a lot more alike than we realize. Uh, Great point. And I found all these people were just really struggling during the pandemic with sleep and, and no surprise. We didn't know what was going on in the early stages. Right. And I just got this, I don't know, this just calling. I just, I thought to myself, I know I'm learning so much about sleep. I can't not share it with other people. And I knew that I wanted to move more into the health space. I've been wanting to for a long time, ever since my first breast cancer diagnosis. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. You're going to be a sleep coach for women and help other women get better sleep. And then it was off to the races. <laughs> that was wow. late 2020. So it's been it's been almost a couple of years. That's my story of how I got to where I am now and why I'm so passionate about the topic of sleep. Such a beautiful story. I love we I just really love having people on the podcast who have stories like mine and like yours, where we there's a problem. We didn't really know how we were gonna fix it, but we persevered, we figured out a way. And then you get to turn that into supporting other people. It's just yeah. incredible. I think it's called pain into purpose or something like that. Yeah, something but, like that. But it's resonating. You've gone through it too. So you really get it. Yeah. And it's a gift, right? In some way. I would never want anyone to experience what I had to go through. But at the same time, I know that they are. And so it's helpful that I can help them and yeah. same for you. So yeah. let's, I would love to ask some like nerd, let's nerd out about sleep. Let's do that. A bit about <laughs> where you've come from and how much you've accomplished. Maybe just quick five to 10 points on sleep benefits. I think probably people know <laughs> some of those benefits, but maybe let's just point out some of the obvious ones or maybe not so obvious ones sure. of why we need to get a good night's sleep. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the way that I look at sleep. So most people think about sleep exercise and nutrition as the three pillars of health. Yet I feel like sleep has had a bad PR agent because it doesn't get the spotlight as much as nutrition and exercise. If you look at what's online or Instagram, you're seeing a lot more fitness trainers and people talking about food. But my argument is that sleep is the foundation upon which the other pillars stand because you could go without food for several months, several weeks and live. You could not have movement indefinitely and live, it wouldn't be pleasant, but you could not go by, get away with not having sleep for several days. I think the longest on record is 11 days without sleep. Wow. So I like- That sounds to, awful, by the way. Can you imagine 11 days? Sounds sleep. like absolute torture to me. Oh, I had a really bad of insomnia. I think it was like six weeks ago at a full, it was a full moon and I was doing a parasite cleanse and they were very active. And it was, I had also- uh, I haven't even talked about this online, but I, because of my antidepressant, I was taking 5-HTP and I had mm-hmm. ran out because I was like, well, I probably don't need it anymore. 
And I'm just self, guys. I think you're hearing a trend. Don't just stop taking things. You got paper. <laughs> but I was awful. Like I was getting like two to four hours of sleep for about six days. And then Ooh. I finally, the full moon passed and I got 5-HTP back from the supplement store and I slept so great. Okay. And it was just a, such a reminder of like how important sleep is. Yes. You'll never take it for granted. No, never. <laughs> After <Never that>. <laughs> Ever again. So really in my messaging about sleep, I prefer to, and we'll get into this more, but I prefer to really talk about the benefits of sleep because I think that in the media, what's going on, if you look at the headlines and I keep track of all the headlines on sleep, it's hard not to when you're in the business. And there are so many scary headlines out there saying this terrible thing will happen to you if you don't sleep. And what we need to really keep in mind is that those that they're referring to, they are not well-controlled studies. So correlation is not causation, right? So in order to really find out what the consequences of sleep deprivation or insomnia are, you'd really have to have a controlled study. So we have to take that into consideration. And when you're willingly sleep depriving yourself, you're not prioritizing your sleep. Those kinds of headlines could potentially be helpful because it shines a light on the potential consequences of what could happen. But the real problem with those scary headlines is, and I'm dealing mainly with clients who have insomnia, the clients who have insomnia or anyone out there who's dealing with insomnia, you are actually trying to put effort towards sleep. You're not willingly sleep depriving yourself. You're trying, but you can't produce the sleep. So those types of scary headlines only exacerbate the anxiety of an already anxious insomniac person. Yeah. Um, So I tend to kind of go in the direction of let's really focus on the benefits. So let's just kind of roll through some of them. I love it. So brain health, it's really critical for our brain health because when we go into deep sleep, we have a glymphatic system. So everyone knows what the lymphatic system is. The glymphatic system is in your brain and it's basically clearing the toxins out of your brain while you sleep. So you get brain health. It's fairly new. I think it was maybe 2017 that they discovered the glymphatic system. So it's relatively new knowledge for us, but essentially you're getting a good brainwashing overnight if you're getting good sleep. I'm so interested in this too, because I would imagine that could be part of like, we have a lot of dementia in this country. Like Mm -hmm. I wonder as the studies come out more and more, how important this glymphatic system will be for proper function. But you're saying that if it's clearing it out, then like cognition the next day, clarity of mind. Yeah, that's what it should translate into. So we've got some great brain benefits. We also have some cardiovascular benefits from having good sleep. We have physical recovery, injury prevention. We have mood and emotional regulation, blood sugar regulation, Mm. hormone balance, We also have an increased ability to be empathetic if we've gotten good sleep and willingness to, (laughs) yeah. And we're more, they did a study on this where we have more empathy and we're more willing to help a stranger when we've had adequate sleep. And we also are able to fight infections better. We're able to stave off cold and flu and other icky viruses. And there's really no area of our bodies that sleep isn't touching. So it's really, I think it's our biggest superpower, but it's, perhaps, like I said, the most underrated superpower. And when you are getting a solid night of sleep on a consistent basis, it changes your whole life. It changes your outlook so very many ways. So I'm obviously a huge proponent and love to share the benefits whenever I'm given the opportunity. 
Yeah, I love that you're so benefit focused because you're right. It does. It impacts every area of our health. So it is really important for us to focus on that. And I think, yeah, we can be motivated by, oh, I get to have good heart health and I can do more things at work maybe, or like I can be there for my kids. I mean, there's so many ways that actually plays out into our life. Oh, when yeah. We're sleep. So, okay, this is something I'm dying to ask you. <laughs> there's a lot of talk recently around, I mean, in kind of traditional holistic health, it's like going to bed between 10, between 10 and 11 and like waking up around six, right? There's also this whole movement around like, People have different, I forget what they call them. They call them different animals. Like you're a lion. Oh, yeah. Chronotypes. Chronotypes for sleep. And so it's something I'm very interested in learning more about. But in your opinion, do you kind of find that there is an ideal sleep window for everybody across the board? Or does it change depending on some factors for people? Well, it's interesting because chronotypes, you really have your chronotype that's kind of genetically determined. Right. So you, it's best not to fight too much against it. And there are, there's a doctor who kind of came up with these different chronotypes, lion, bear, dolphin, but really, if you think about it, it's early bird or morning lark and night owl. So the way that society operates, it really operates for the benefit of the morning, the early bird. Yeah. Think of every meeting start at eight, work starts at eight. And so it can be a real problem for people who have a very strong night owl tendency. And we found that in the pandemic, those night owls fared better because they could kind of sleep in. They were relieved in a way of some of the stressors that society was putting on them for being a night owl. But what we find is that our chronotype as people, it kind of shifts over our lifespan. So if you think about like when you were a teenager, you may have stayed out really late and slept in really until like noon. And that was like pretty common for a lot of teenagers. And then as we get into, I guess our forties, somewhere around there, we start kind of shifting a little bit more back into the morning lark and start wanting, craving that earlier bedtime, naturally wanting to get up a little bit earlier. And then that kind of keeps going. And if you think about early bird specials in a retirement community, it's like the four o'clock eating dinner because they want to be in bed really early. Yeah, I totally. <laughs> uh, yeah, I definitely think of the older people I have yeah. in my life of uh, they're asleep yeah. by 1030. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. Or earlier. <laughs> yeah, that's me. And I'm not that old, but I'm definitely I'm a hardcore early bird chronotype. Mm-hmm. So I like to go to bed at nine. And so I think that we really just as best we can need to work within our chronotype and respect it. So for example, there are a lot of parents, but there, there could be parents who are trying to make their child into a certain chronotype. And it's, we need to really respect the chronotype and work with our natural tendency. And to your question about bedtimes, 10, 11 is actually probably like the most common bedtime window because most people are quote bear, bear chronotypes. That's like probably about 50% of the population. And they tend to want to go to bed naturally between 10 and 11 and get up around seven ish. Mm -hmm. So most of the world kind of operates like that, but we do have our outliers. We do have people like I know one woman who's a sleep doctor and she has something called delayed phase sleep disorder. And it is technically severe night owl. She doesn't go to bed until maybe two. She's wired that way. So she may sleep till 10, but she's working and creating into the late, like she's creating while I'm going to bed. Yeah. 
So when, and when she was in, I guess her training, she had to get up very early for hospital rounds at seven. And that was like torture. That would be like you or I having to get up at 3am to go to work. Actually, I would say I'm not a 2A person, but I'm like probably like 11.30 to 12 seems to be like really anywhere from like 10.30 to 12 seems to be like mm -hmm. a good. And then like between 7.30 and 8 is usually Mm -hmm. when I'll get up and that feels the best for me. But I know for a long time, I would just judge it. I'd be like, oh my God, I should be in bed an hour earlier. And my husband is definitely this type, whatever you just said, the delayed phase sleep disorder. Like he's happy as a clam if he goes to bed at 2 a.m. It's just so bad. You have to go. (laughs) I'm glad we're having this conversation. Yes. Because yeah, he's very creative actually. And so he can just, he actually runs pretty well on like more like six hours of sleep, interestingly enough. So it's kind of just fascinating to talk about because I think there's a lot of stigma about if you're not asleep by 10. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But maybe not. Yeah. Well, the main thing, and this is just really recent data that I heard on the latest Andrew Huberman podcast. There's a sleep doctor, Gina Poe is her name. And she was talking about, we need to be very consistent with our bedtime because when we're consistent every night, we're going to be like priming our human growth hormone to be released at the same time. So in other words, like wild variances of bedtimes can inhibit that growth hormone release. So now we're really, I've been talking so much as a sleep coach for the past couple of years about very predictable, consistent wake up times. And I've been a little bit more lax with my clients as far as it's a different case in insomnia, but there's been a little bit more forgiveness with not being so consistent. But now with this new data, it's looking like we really want to kind of just keep a very consistent nighttime sleep window, but that's actually easier to do when your morning wake up time is very consistent because you've got that anchor. So if you wake up at 7am, usually you're going to start getting sleepy about 17 hours later. Okay. That regularity on either end is pretty important. Keep things regular. Wow. Very cool. I'm so glad we're having this conversation and just kind of breaking down also the latest in the science, because I'm sure not all of us are glued to the research like you are and seeing all the new stuff come out. So it's very cool to hear this shift in the knowledge and the consistent going to sleep being really important. Yeah. So, well, that kind of leads me into a question I wanted to ask you. Well, I, I definitely want to get your thoughts on like why people don't sleep well and strategies. But just before we get into that, I'm thinking you mentioned like consistency with going to bed and waking up. So maybe there's also some information around morning and evening routines. I know I definitely changed mine up a lot. And it's interesting to see like how it impacts sleep and energy throughout the day. So what's your thoughts? Two things that are pretty key in the morning. One we just touched on is the regular wake up time. It's super important. The other thing is to get sunlight in your eyes as soon as you can upon awakening. It doesn't have to be like, well, so I wake up at five. I know that sounds a little extreme, but there's no sunlight at 5am. So I have to wait until the sun comes up, but I'm trying to get out there as soon as I see the sun. And the key thing is, and I notice this so much when I'm walking my dog in the neighborhood, I see other dog moms walking too, and they've got their sunglasses on. And there's the reason why that's kind of an issue is that the sunglasses are blocking the light from having contact with your retina. So When that sunlight hits your retina, it sends a signal to your suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is your circadian pacemaker. It's sort of like your master clock. 
And when that sunlight hits, it triggers this whole beautiful cascade of hormones and neurotransmitter. For example, it increases your cortisol to give you energy, increases your serotonin. It shuts off your melatonin, yet it also preps your melatonin production for that, that coming night. So you really get a lot of great benefits from having that exposure to the sun in your eyes for maybe about 10 minutes. You don't have to, if it's a really very cloudy day, you might need a little bit more time with that sun exposure, but it doesn't take too long to get the benefits. So just note to the folks out there, I mean, I know you like your sunglasses and they're cute and all, but like in the morning, just leave them at home or put them on your, prop them up on your head, like yeah. a headband or whatever. Well, it's not like you have to stare into the sun to no. get the you no. just have your retinopia. Yeah, yeah. you definitely don't want to stare yeah. at the sun, but you want to just kind of keep your gaze kind of just forward. So you do have that exposure. Another thing people, and I have a client who just was like, I don't want to walk in the cold and the gloom. She lives like in the Pacific Northwest and so the, her compromise was sitting on her porch with a cup of hot coffee. So that way she's not having to really like do a lot, but just sit there and drink her coffee and maybe look at the paper or whatever, check, yeah. check in with her emails or whatnot. So that's another way you could do it. If you didn't, for example, if it was raining or whatever, yeah. I'm kind of a wimp with the rain. I don't like to walk in it. So Sometimes it's really I cold here. So I don't know. It might even be worse to sit there. Like I think I'm moving my body would probably make me warmer. Yeah, you'd warm up a little for sure. Yeah. That's important. I'm glad you brought up the circadian rhythm because that's something I teach my clients too. And it's sometimes it's hard to get them to do it, but it's a really important step for that. So oh, yeah. Yeah. And then as far as like a morning routine, I have something that I recommend called the three M's. And generally speaking, I think this would be an ideal one hour routine. For most people, and I'll share how it's divided. And I definitely understand that not everyone can spend an hour on their morning routine because a lot of people have young children that need to be taken to the school bus and just there are all these extraneous circumstances. But if you can carve out an hour, awesome. But if you only have 20 minutes, whatever you can take it. So the way I like to do this is dividing it into three different segments. So the first, se- and it doesn't have to be in this order, it can be in any order you want, but it would be movement. And that would be like maybe 20 minutes of movement. That could be your walk. And then you'd be habit stacking potentially with your morning sunlight, which is the way I like to go. Cause habit stacking is a great way to save time. It is. <laughs> it sounds like the ones around atomic habits. <laughs> yes, indeed. But if you don't want to walk, if it's too cold or whatever, you could do some stretching or yoga, or you could do rebounding on mini trampoline to get your limb system going. And then the second element would be mindset. And that would be things like meditation, breath work, or just sitting in silence, positive books, journaling, and affirmations. So one of my favorite quotes is by Louise Hay. It's how you start your day is how you live your day. And this is why I'm such a, I really do value the morning routine more so than the evening routine for this reason. It's because the morning sets the tone for the rest of your day. And for a lot of us, we need that centering in the morning, that grounding, that time for ourselves, because when you're able to set yourself up for stress reduction early in the day, that kind of anything that kind of gets in your way, like later in the day, you're going to be able to buffer that more easily if you're grounded and centered from the moment your feet hit the ground in the morning. So that is why I feel like this morning routine is so critical. I have a client who 
she literally would just get out of bed and throw her clothes on and drive to work. She had no, no kind of routine. I mean, oh, she was yeah. literally, it was literally like Gross. 10 minutes from bed to work. And when she started doing a morning routine, such as the one I just mentioned, she was like, things are just different. Like my days are going better. I'm sleeping better. So it, there's really a, a beautiful spillover effect. So that's why I, I really hone in so much on the morning routine. Do you want me to go into the evening routine or did you want to elaborate a little more in the morning? Well, no, I was just going to say something. I think I don't know how well versed the audience is in human design or how well you are in that, but I'm a projector, which means okay. like I can't really do anything like the same. I get bored very uh, easily. Uh-huh. So what I loved about what you said at the three M's is you can consistently do things inconsistently, meaning like you can set the same time that you wake up and know that you're going to do certain things, but you could change it. Like you could do intuitive movement or dance break or be like, no, it's really more of a day of stretching or yoga or a walk. And so you can kind of keep those like blocks of time. But if it's feeling too restrictive to do the same thing every day, you can still do the habit stack, but have a bunch of different types of things you like to do. So in the morning, I just like to ask myself like, hey, Sophie, what do you need today? And And also what you said about maybe sometimes we don't have a full hour. We have 20 minutes. I mean, on a great day, I have an hour. On a not so great day, I don't. So maybe I listen to the one minute meditation and I do some jumping jacks or something to get myself moving on a day that's tighter. So I think you can be, you can have a routine and you can also make it fun and flexible if it feels like, oh God, I have so much structure in my life. Like another thing to be structured about, you can, you get to make this fun. Yeah. I mean, that's the point too. We stick with things that give us joy, really. Yes. Like your client who found that doing this allowed her to have a better day and better sleep. She's great. I'm going to keep doing it. Yeah. She had a lot of motivation to keep that up for sure. Yeah, absolutely. But I would, yeah, let's talk about what do you recommend in the evening for sleep? Yeah. So there's some kind of prep steps that I like to share with folks about getting ready for the evening. So most people seem to eat dinner around seven-ish, six, seven or whatever, So after your dinner is over, a couple of things you can do to kind of set the stage for your house for sleep would be to lower the temperature of your bedroom by a couple degrees. You don't necessarily need to lower the temperature of your whole house, but if you could somehow get your bedroom temperature lower, that would be ideal because we need to lower our body core temperature by a few degrees in order to initiate sleep. And yeah, we sleep much better in a cool environment. And then as far as light is concerned, A lot of, I mean, I know personally, like I have overhead LED lights in my house on the main living space. So what I do is I turn those off and then turn on a very dim table light because you want to start lowering the light, the dim light, it kind of preps you for sleep. And I actually take it kind of a step further. I put on some blue blocking glasses around seven or eight. There's a little bit of, some people don't really believe that they work, but I feel like they really help me when I don't have them. I definitely struggle more to get because we watch TV at night. And so I'll wear them. And there was a time when I like lost them for a while. And I was like, man, I just am not going to sleep as easily. Yeah, I feel the same way. I put on my really dark red shades at night and it does make me actually feel sleepy. I think with blue light blocking glasses, your mileage may vary. I think it's not like consistently across the board. Everyone gets a benefit, but I definitely recommend them just out of abundance of caution. And it's a very easy intervention. Although for those of us that wear glasses, it's pretty funny. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I already wear glasses and then I put them on top and my husband's like, 
good look. That's really cute. Yes. My husband does the same thing. He puts on a pair of wraparound red. He looks like Bono or whatever. And it's kind of cute actually. (laughs) But so, yeah, that's how the best way to prepare your home environment. As far as what you do after that, there's something that I like to call like the power down hour. Again, it's an hour, but if you don't have an hour, at least take 30 minutes, at least take 30 minutes because there's a sleep scientist named Matthew Walker who wrote why we sleep. And he has a really brilliant expression, like falling asleep is like landing a plane. You have to gradually descend, but it's not an on off switch, right? So we have to do things that are going to kind of take us down a notch. And so how I like to kind of teach people about the evening wind down is take 20 minutes, the first 20 minutes and finish up, tie up loose ends of the day, maybe pack your lunch for the next day, lay out your clothes, whatever those like prep things you could do for the next day, do some of them. And then the next 20 minute segment would be your personal hygiene. And that would include like getting into your pajamas or nightgown, presuming you sleep in something. Not everyone does, but brushing your teeth, washing your face, doing a skincare routine. And that could take, depending on how many steps I could take a full 20 minutes for some people. Sometimes that's me and I'm not ashamed to say it. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. It's (laughs) so indulgent. I love it. And then the final 20 minutes, and actually I would probably personally extend this into a little bit longer, but it depends on your own personal situation would be your relaxation time. Mm -hmm. So that really, that's very personalized according to what you like to do for relaxation. Some common things, reading, knitting, journaling, meditating. I personally, and people are sometimes shocked when I say this because they're like, well, you're a sleep coach. Why would you do this? But I watch TV every night before bed. Yeah. And the way that I'm able to watch TV and not ruin my sleep is there are a couple of things. We just mentioned the blue light, black glasses. They do work for me. I also watch a real TV that's a fair amount of distance from my eyes. So I'm not sitting there with a laptop, like in my face. And then I think really most importantly is the content of what you're watching. A few years ago, I would watch things like the handmaid's tale or I'd watch whatever. And it was so provocative and intense and sometimes scary that it really did affect my sleep. I would, you know, it was making me anxious. And so I kind of thought, okay, it's time to change the content. So now it's like my husband and I do this together. We just choose content that is like light, maybe like a food show, a documentary about, we're watching one on called Wild Babies. It's about little baby animals in, the, in Africa or wherever, just like very kind of non-controversial. I wouldn't watch the news at this time. I wouldn't watch the news. But yeah, if TV relaxes you, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to do that. The long and short of it is you just want to find something that you particularly find to be relaxing, whatever that is. And that's your evening routine. So I love it. That's, I loved that you're, I love both, but they both have three sections. That's very cool. Symmetry is good. (laughs) So one thing we, we didn't really talk about before we just dove into the morning and evening routines is why people, why women particularly suffer from poor sleep. I mean, obviously there's, we know about like, blue light exposure. We know about caffeine and and trying to get off of that. But in your experience coaching so many women with their sleep, is there common threads that you find? I know for me, I'll just say stress is probably the number one thing and or not giving themselves any space 
personal time during the day. And so it's all, well, let me stay up really late and push past my boundaries for sleep because I didn't really have any time during the day. So I'm curious what your experience yes. is. <laughs> that, yeah. Let's talk about that. Well, first of all, like it's very clear from the data that women are not getting as good of sleep as men. In fact, there was a, a survey in 2021 where women said they were one and a half times more likely to rarely or never report sleeping well than men. So women are definitely suffering. Women get insomnia almost twice as often as men. And as far as reasons why, there's three main reasons. The first reason we know is that hormones, kind of obvious from teen, teenager all the way through menopause, hormones fluctuating can impact our sleep. The second reason is that women are more prone to things like anxiety and depression, which are bi-directional to sleep, have a bi-directional relationship. And then thirdly, the socio roles of women that oh, a lot yeah. of women psychosocial. That's what I was trying to say. In any case, it's women who I would say like 40 plus, maybe you're looking at somebody who could potentially be caring for young children at home, might be caring for an aging parent and might be like kind of at the top of their career. All these demands on them create conditions that are not good for sleep. And what you said is very true in my client population. It's the stress and anxiety that is impacting their ability to sleep and the fact that they're not giving them space during the day. So one of the things that I like to stress to folks is taking mindfulness snacks during the day. And I don't know if I coined this term or someone else did, but I use it all the time. So if I'm taking it from someone else, I apologize, but it's basically like taking breaks throughout the day and pausing and just doing something to promote mindfulness. Maybe you're just taking a walk around the block without a podcast on. You're just like in silence. Maybe you're doing some breath work. Maybe you're doing some meditation. I think that it's just so common for us to just run from thing to thing all day long without pausing and reflecting. And that really, that really does impact our sleep at night. And we need to like take a step back and do things, at least one thing a day that brings us joy. Yeah, because what ends up happening quite often I see is that there's something called revenge bedtime procrastination. Yes, And that is basically when we are so busy during the day, meeting other people's demands, whether that's our family or our job, we just haven't taken any time for ourselves. So once everyone's gone to bed, we start to kind of do things that like numb us out. Like maybe we're binge watching Netflix or we're scrolling on Instagram or Twitter and we logically know we should be going to bed, but we're just like, screw it. Like, yeah. I just want to, I want to stay up because I haven't been able to do anything fun all day. So those mindfulness snacks and those taking breaks to do things that you enjoy, I think could potentially mitigate that whole revenge bedtime procrastination scenario. I've definitely found that with my clients when we dig into it, that it's almost always the revenge bedtime yes. procrastination it's like the teenager version uh -huh. of you comes out and you're like i must have time which like yes you do you must have time which is actually why the morning routine i think is some ways in some ways to answer that especially if it's something you enjoy like the movement is something you enjoy or meditation is something you enjoy or something like that that can be like a really beautiful way to give to yourself so you're not just kind of tacking it all on at the end of the day yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, it's interesting to talk to someone who does this specifically. That's your main experience as yes. well. 
And then what about, I think there's two categories you've mentioned, really. It's like people who work maybe doing more of that, like the revenge bedtime procrastination, or they're not really working on sleep. And then there's the people like yourself where you would just lay there and just be awake and just couldn't sleep. So I'm wondering if you could also talk into what do you find maybe is behind that or what can people do to mitigate a situation like that? Yeah, it can be pretty complicated. So there's a couple different types of insomnia. And I mean, we could do a whole episode on insomnia in itself, but I'll try to kind of simplify it for now. But there's sleep onset insomnia, which is what I had is when you get into bed and you just lie there, you can't sleep. Then there's sleep maintenance insomnia, which is when you might wake up at 2 or 3 a.m. And then there's sort of, I don't know exactly what it's called, maybe late morning insomnia. It's when you wake up too early and you can't get back to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. So what I find, this is a generalization, but it seems to me that the people who are having sleep onset insomnia where they can't get to sleep, it's, it tends to be more stress and anxiety related. Yeah. And so with that kind of client, we work on ways to mitigate that stress during the day. So the mindfulness snacks, there's also a really powerful exercise that I like to share with people called designated worry time. And it's basically like a planned worry session that they do like maybe after dinner, not too close to bed, but like a few hours before bed where you literally, it's a brain dump or worry, structured worry time where you get out all of those things and put them on paper with the premise behind it is that if it's out on paper, it's not going to be in your head as much once your head hits the pillow. I find that really is true. I mean, sometimes it's hard if there's something really severe going on that you can't have an answer to, but I find if I can articulate what I'm worried about and say it out loud or write it down, I've put it into the light and then the fear can't really be there as much because I'll probably be able to tell, is this something I can do about, is this something I can't do something about? And then I can move on from there or create a plan for the next day to do something about it. Yes. And then the other kind of insomnia, the sleep maintenance insomnia, when someone wakes up at two or 3 a.m., well, I should just say waking in the middle of the night is not abnormal. It's actually very normal to have a wake up or two. In fact, we can have up to 10 wake ups at night. In fact, we are, we really do wake up between each sleep cycle. And mm-hmm. we, we do that. We wake up very briefly. We don't even know we're doing it, but we scan the room for safety. And then we go back to sleep. Uh-huh. Unless you're awake for more than three minutes, you're not going to remember it. So it's very normal to have these wake ups and because I'm a sleep coach, I get targeted a lot of ads and a lot of products that say this will make you sleep through the night. Or there's this expectation that one must never wake up in the middle of the <laughs> night. And it's actually a really unhelpful thing be- or a real unrealistic expectation because it's normal to wake up. The problem is when we wake up and we start to panic and yeah. we can't get back to sleep. So sometimes with that situation, the wake-ups. Now, if they're waking up a lot, sometimes there are physical issues that we need to kind of delve into. Sometimes it could be sleep apnea episodes. It could be poor blood sugar regulation. I'm sure that you see that a lot. And also people being too hot and they might not even realize it. So there's some, and there's other, a variety of other things. There's partners, pets. I mean, just, there's just a variety of things that could disrupt your sleep. But for people who really do have insomnia and when they wake up in the middle of the night and they start to panic and ruminate, 
what I recommend them doing is something that comes from CBTI, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. It's called stimulus control. Okay. And it's basically when you remove yourself from your bedroom, when you are lying there awake for like more than 30 minutes and you're frustrated and anxious, yeah. you take yourself into another room, you do something relaxing and dim light until you find yourself to be sleepy again. And then you get back into bed because what we really want to work against, we want, we don't want your bed to be paired with anxiety. We want you to associate your bed always with sleep and relaxation. Yes. So, so that's a technique that, that I use with some folks who are highly anxious about the wake-ups and they can't seem to stop. They basically train themselves. They're in a behavioral rut of waking up at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And then because they've experienced it over and over again, the evidence that it's going to be, I'm, oh, I'm not going to get sleep and then I'm going to be tired and whatever the runaway train is can be definitely a hard one. And yeah, I've been there a few times. It doesn't happen too often, but when it does, if I lay there for too long, I'll just work myself into a tizzy. Yeah. Um, and I really try not to look at the clock. That's a really big Yeah, trigger. I'm glad you said that because when I work with my clients, I say, listen, let's get the clock out of your bedroom. Yeah. Because when you wake up at 2 a.m., it doesn't matter what time it is. Yeah. It do- it's irrelevant. Your job is to not stress out. And the, if you look at the clock, you're more likely to stress out. Absolutely. I find that too. And I just try to, I just try to ignore that on my phone or whatever. Well, amazing. It's been, I think almost an hour of, I feel like I want to have you back for a part two because there is so much more to talk about. Like a whole episode on insomnia would be really cool. What do you think? Yeah, I think (laughs) that would be great. I love the topic for sure. There's lots to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Because I I feel like there's just a bunch more. And this has been like an incredible first episode about sleep. I think it's the first time we've even really talked about sleep on the podcast. So we definitely need to have you back again. But is there anything else top of mind or top tip or something you want the women of the podcast to, to hear before we put a pin in it until part two? Well, I would just say there are very many things you can do that are free and easy. And we've gone through some of them, but just know you don't have to do like crazy biohacks to sleep. You don't have to like load up with supplements and do a lot of devices. There are lots of really basic things like just to reiterate the morning sun, consistent wake up time. And we didn't mention this, but exercise, daily exercise has been shown to be sleep promoting. So I definitely recommend that to all my clients just to stay active during the day because that activity boosts your sleep drive. So it makes it easier to sleep. So you, so basically there's simple interventions at your disposal and you don't need to get fancy to get good sleep. Absolutely. And where can people find you if they have like, maybe they feel like they've tried a lot of different things and they're still just not getting sleep and they want some support through coaching? Sure. Well, my website is morganadamswellness.com and I offer a free sleep clarity call for anyone who wants to chat with me. I'm also pretty active on Instagram, Morgan Adams wellness, Morgan Adams dot wellness, excuse me. I do a lot of content there. If anyone wants to connect with me there. Oh my gosh. Well, we'll definitely link all of that in the show notes and we'll have to have you back to kind of do even more of a deep dive on sleep because this has been fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been great. And guys, we will see you in two weeks for the next episode. Hope you enjoyed this one. I hope this episode got you one step closer to achieving your optimal health. 
If you liked this episode, please spend a few seconds to rate it so more women can find this resource. Be sure to tune in for more women's health support next week on the She Talks Health podcast. And in the meantime, you can find me on Instagram or Facebook at She Talks Health. I have an open door DM policy. No question is stupid and I'm always here for you.